Lights. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new Marvel comics on sale June 30th, 2021. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yeah, and welcome to a landmark 156th episode. <laughs> it's a classic 156th anniversary episode. Here we are. Tucker, I think back to all my favorite 156th issues. Oh, Just the best. Oh my God, it's beautiful. This is our 156th episode. Thank you to our wonderful producer, Jasmine, for going through numbering all of our episodes because I just think that stuff is fun. I like knowing that stuff. And maybe we'll do some fun stuff when we reach the next big plateaus of 159, 168. (laughs) Oh, 168. And then, of course, who could forget 174? Big, big, (laughs) big number coming up. So, yes, if you are just joining us, we're going to tell you about all the new comics out this week. We'll give you our picks for the big books that are on sale. We'll then tell you a little bit about each of the other books, and we'll give some awards out. We'll figure out what those awards are called. We'll tell you what's also available in Collected Edition this week and what is hitting Marvel Unlimited. And after all of that, we're going to have a guest on. Who's our guest this week, Tucker? This week, it is the inimitable Benjamin Percy one of the best writers around, one of the nicest guys around, writer of, of course, X-Force, Wolverine, Wolverine the Long Night, Wolverine the Lost Trail uh, podcasts, and of course, the currently ongoing Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord podcast. We're going to be talking about Old Man Quill, a really, really excellent series. So we're diving into the Wastelands Madness with Mr. Percy later on. Yeah. Oh, speaking of other podcasts that aren't ours, I was recently on the Shonen Jump podcast. It's for Shonen Jump, and they release new manga every week on their app. But I went on to talk about the sort of similarities, the differences, and the love for Western comics and manga. And yes, I got to talk smack about Gambit on another comics (laughs) podcast. I felt real good about that. If you want to hear that episode, you can go look it up uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can, of course, uh, just go to viz.com slash blog. Check it out over there. I had a lot of fun. But let us now for a back to the world of Marvel and get into talking about our new books this week. We've got some picks. Why don't you kick us off this week, yeah. Tucker? Yeah. Yeah, let's do this. We're starting it off with Beta Ray Bill number four. This is brought to you by... Daniel Warren Johnson with Crucial Colors by Mike Spicer and Letters by VCs Joe Sabino with Mr. Johnson himself. There's been wild, like so DWJ specific, like autorship throughout. And that really finds its way visually and most strikingly with the action sequences, but also the emotional moments in this series have been unbelievable. This issue, though, yes, we start in a place that is truly grounded in the heart and soul of this character of Beta Ray Bill. But as we get going, this is like 80s action movie, awesome, like badass, pedal to the metal stuff. I love it so much. It all just feels like everything is firing at a 10 all at the same time. The story, the art, the colors, the emotions, the action, and then the narrative over the course of these four issues that we head into the final fifth issue with. And it's just going to be incredible. How could it not? Because every single thing that's been done in this series so far has been great. We've talked about Daniel Warren Johnson being a huge wrestling fan, but in here, he draws 
the greatest looking German suplex <laughs> I've ever seen in a comic. It is so perfect. I was reading it next to my wife and the page with the suplex comes on and I'm like, oh my God. And I turned the iPad over to my wife. I was like, look at this suplex. Her eyes, I kid you not, legitimately got wider. There's just an art to a good suplex. And we appreciate that in this household. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and you can tell that Daniel Warren Johnson appreciates it as well. This book is so friggin' good. Oh, man. It's just great. Totally. Also great this week is one of our picks, The United States of Captain America, number one. This is a big one because, one, it's following up on ta Coates's Captain America run. So this is giving a new Captain America story. And there's some really fun stuff about this. It's a different kind of Cap story because... The idea is bringing together a number of men who have wielded the shield, who have been Captain America. There's a mystery going on. This issue sort of introduces the mystery. And each issue will also introduce someone else who has taken the name of Captain America and, and is sort of a Captain America, taking that sort of totemic power and that sense of what Captain America means to American people but in very different ways than a Steve Rogers or a Sam Wilson or even a Bucky Barnes. Uh, and in this issue, we are introduced to Aaron Fisher, the Captain America of the Railways. He is part of the main story, but he also gets his own origin story throughout the course of the book. The story that introduces Aaron first is the main story, and that is written by Christopher Cantwell. He's going to be writing each issue, the main story, alongside artist Dale Eaglesham, who so glad to see Dale back at Marvel. There's just like something warm about the way Dale draws Captain America. And, and in this case, multiple Captains America. Uh, there's even a great line where Sam and Steve are talking about, is it Captain America's or Captain's America? And they're talking about that. There's like funny little bits of humor. Christopher Cantwell, you know, he's been doing, he did Doctor Doom that we really loved. He's been working on Iron Man. He's got all these different projects going on. But it's really good to see this Captain America story get off the ground. Also, the last page of the main story is just a handshake between Sam and Steve. It's not the exact Predator handshake, but it's pretty damn close. And it's so good. It's like there's more muscle on this page than I think is like allowed at a bodybuilding competition. It's so good. So that's the main story. Then the secondary story that really dives into Aaron's tale is written by Josh Trujillo with art by Jan Basatua. It's really wonderful stuff. Colors across the whole board are by Matt Mila and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I don't want to say too much about Aaron. I think he's got a great story. It's a very different Captain America, one that I think will resonate with a lot of folks. I think it's a great story to tell, especially right now. We're celebrating Pride Month. All that said, this is a great kickoff to this limited series. We're going to see a new Captain America show up each issue. The big mystery is that Steve's shield has been stolen by someone with some really intense superpowers. And Steve's like, let's go get my shield back. Let's do a big old road trip and make it happen. I'm going to take us over to our next pick this week. We're headed back once more to the Hellfire Gala and the first issue in the recommended reading order this week comes in the form of X Factor number 10. And then we have a little coda sort of story with uh, Cable 11 after that. But X Factor 10, this is the final issue of X Factor. And there's just so much beautiful stuff in this issue. In particular, I think with iBoy with Prodigy. There's some absolutely 
awesome sequences with Prodigy that I really, really loved in here. Look, this is the like foremost queer book out there. I'll just say it. And that's what's so special about it. That is just one of the many things that's so special about it. And it has such a feeling of love behind it all. And by that, I mean, terrible things happen to these characters. They go through a lot of stuff, including in this issue. And some of that goes unresolved. We don't get a happy ending walking off into the sunset for everybody involved here. But that speaks to all the craft that's brought to the table by this creative team, and I have to name them. The story is by Leah Williams and David Baldion, with a script by Leah, an art in here by David Baldion, David Messina, and Lucas Warnick, colors by Israel Silva, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Every single issue is so special, and you could just feel that they refuse to hold back in a way that is uniquely X-Factor. There's just so much to love in here, and I also got to immediately say one of the things that I loved most was these letters that were written by Leah and David at the end of the issue. They both penned these beautiful missives, these love letters to X-Factor, to the fans of X-Factor, to the characters in here, to the creative process, what they've all been through. And it's wonderful. This is what comics are all about. It's about the heart. It's about the soul. It's about these characters' relationships. It's about what they mean to each other and what they mean to us. And I think this is a special series that's going to go down in the history books for a lot of people, and very, very rightfully so. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad we got this much X-Factor. I wish we had more. But Leah's going to be writing that Trial of Magneto book, which I believe the X-Factor characters are going to be showing up in there. They've got one more big investigation, and uh, we'll see how that shakes out when that starts up this August. All right. Tucker, you mentioned we have a a bit of a coda and we're picking four this week because the X-Books just were so great and we had to talk about them. Specifically, I needed to talk about Cable. Cable is like, I am a product of Marvel Comics of the late 80s and early 90s. Like, that is in my my nerdy DNA. It has informed so much of my love of, of comics and a lot of it is Cable. I was... A little hesitant about Kid Cable, but I think Jerry really nailed the character and gave him a voice that was very different from Old Man Cable. He's trying to prove himself both to himself, to his older self, to his family. And so this is, we're coming to like what feels like this big culmination of that story where he's trying to stop the clone of himself, Strife, from murdering babies and making more clones and doing all kinds of terrible stuff. And this issue is about getting all his people together because he knows he can't do it on his own. And it's one of the sweetest X books out there. There's a moment in here, and this is spoiler territory. They bring back the older Cable because he's kind of functionally a different version of Nathan Summers. And so they they bring him back on Krakoa with the memories of where he was and everything. And one of the people that helps resurrect him is his daughter, Hope. Oh, I should say this is written by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto. There's a page where Cable sees Hope. It's one of the first people he sees, and he just says, hey, kiddo. And then they hug. Just I was like, <laughs> just thinking about, you know, my daughter and, and like that family moment. We have these connections to these characters, and I think it's just so well told and well done in this issue. It's wonderful comic books. It's a, a bit of a like, Getting the team together, little Ocean's Eleven-y kind of vibe. Both cables have their missions. They're going forward. We're getting to this big battle issue, which I think will be 12, and it's everything I could have hoped for. 
Yeah, right there with you. All right, that's what we have for our picks this week. Now we are jumping into the 156th anniversary Pulist Award. <laughs> We're jumping in with Avengers Mech Strike number four. You know, it's funny because it felt like this book was just like a very, very specific thing right at the start of it. And it continues to hold the spirit of that, this mech book. It's really, really cool. But it's also an Avengers book at the same time. And really what this is, is a testament to the scale of story that writer Jed McKay can bring to the table because this is enormous. I got to give my 156th anniversary pull list award to the work that he's doing here with Kang because – Kang the Conqueror, one of my top five favorite Marvel characters, period. The expansiveness of what can be done with that character. And there's some, been some like simmering cool Kang stories happening lately. I'm thinking of Doctor Doom, written, uh, written by Christopher Cantwell, which is really cool. But there's really fascinating stuff here happening in this cool sort of triangle. And by that, I mean there's Avengers at one point, there's Thanos at another point, and there's Kang at a third point. How those all sort of swirl around each other and change allegiances, change positions, change how they affect one another is really, really cool. And I'm really digging this story. Next up, we have Black Cat Annual number one. This one has two stories in it. It has a, a great standalone story, but it also has uh, the next part of the Nick Fury sort of storyline about the Infinity Gems and him trying to track down all the different wielders of them right now. That is just gorgeous and really cool. But my 156th anniversary Polist Award goes to Black Cat who is just such a fantastic character, especially in the hands of writer Jed McKay, as in here. She's in Korea in here and gets involved with the like national Korean super team. They have to take down one of their own, who is basically like superpowered levels of Hyperion. And it's funny. It is quirky. It is silly. It's a little sexy. It is exactly what all the Black Cat books are. And it's another reason everyone should be reading Black Cat. Oh, yeah. Now we have issue four of Black Knight, Curse of the Ebony Blade. I got to give the 156 award to Sergio Davila, the artist, because there is a ton of story to tell in here, both in terms of Dane Whitman's past, in terms of like all the different places he's held in the Marvel Universe. It's a really, really deep, deep history in terms of those things, but also just in terms of the story that's being told in this series in particular. There's a lot of stuff that went on in the past that's affecting the present that will continue to affect things as we go on. So this creative team really needed to be clever about how they present that information. I think the sort of montage-esque manner in which a lot of these things are presented is just very beautifully done. It's really clever and it doesn't feel like exposition for exposition's sake and, and, and just like trying to feed you your vegetables that way. It feels like a gripping story the entire way along. And that's a huge achievement. It's really cool. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next book, which is Black Widow number eight. Everybody should be reading this. This book now has the status in my brain of Runaways for me of like, this is a book that is so pitch perfect and is all the creators firing so hard on all their cylinders. It is exactly the title I want to read every time an issue comes out. And it is terrific. You've got Natasha, the Black Widow, teaming up with Yelena, the sort of White Widow here. Two of them, they are involved with some stuff. It's in San Francisco. If you're not read the first volume, please go read that now. You will not be disappointed. Big action, wonderful energy. My 156th award goes to Elena Casagrande, 
for just being such a master choreographer of the double page splashes. I think Elena and Kelly, the two of them together, and Jordi Belair, just the creative team is stupid good. It's so good. There's a double page spread in here that does this basically watching Natasha beat the crap out of people while also saving someone. It's just so fluid and elegant and smart and funny. Great book. Totally. Next up, we have Daredevil number 31. This is the kickoff of a new story arc called Lockdown. Obviously, we have traveled miles and miles with Matt Murdock here. Continues to be a fascinating story. Just if we were just reading what was happening with Matt alone, let alone the fact that we have one of the most exciting things happening in all of Marvel Comics right now, which is Elektra with the Daredevil costume, with the mantle. Obviously, this is all part of the epic, grand story that's being told by Chip Zdarsky. I got to give the 156th anniversary award, though, to the fight sequences in here in particular. They're brought to you by Mike Hawthorne. He has a great command, I think, of hand-to-hand, knockdown, drag-out, fisticuffs, and fighting in that way. And you get some of these pages that are, you know, it's that classic thing of both being totally cacophonous and chaotic, but at the same time, wonderfully composed in the way that it's narrated the way that the story is told alongside it all is just wonderful. And in addition to that, Daredevil fights differently than Electra fights. And that's really cool to see be borne out in these pages. So um, as usual, this is one of the finest reads out there. So so go pick this one up as well. That's so friggin' good. Uh, also great Eternals number five this week. It's such a gorgeous book. Isad Rabik doing just landmark work. Uh, this is a big one, though, for the Eternals. We get to learn about who the traitor is. We get a lot of Thanos in here. We get big battles. We get to see the return of sort of major Eternal character who has had ties to the Marvel Universe and the Avengers before. But my 156th anniversary award goes to Kieran Gillen's narration throughout this book. The narrator of the book is the, quote unquote, the machine, which is the Earth. And it's telling the story. It's got a sense of humor. It's funny. It's uh, weird, it's quirky, and it's been one of like the joys I didn't know I would get out of this title. Because the book is, there's a lot of like weird stuff going on with Eternal's history and story and, and sort of building their mythology. But I think Kieran does such a great job of taking all of that and then also adding in some really just wonderful, funny caption stuff. And now, hey, we got a new number one coming up with Giant Size, Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, Chameleon Conspiracy, number one. This story that's being told by Nick Spencer, it's been in the works for a long time, obviously. There are threads that go back to Amazing Spider-Man, number one, three years ago at this point. And Nick Spencer is going out with a bang here. This one is co-written with Ed Brisson, which we've seen a couple times in the past, which I love to see as a big fan of Ed. One of my favorite things, though, when I think of Nick Spencer's time with this character, I think one of the high watermarks is the Hunted story arc with Craven the Hunter. I thought that was excellent. Obviously, Craven is one of the great figures of Spidey's Rogues Gallery, but still putting Craven right in the spotlight, really analyzing that character, seeing the same thing happen here with Chameleon, I think is really, really cool. And that's what I give my award to is just Getting to get to know this character, and now that we have this story coming your way, Chameleon Conspiracy, 
it's the perfect opportunity to put him up on that pedestal and let him give us all he's got. It's really, really cool stuff going on here with a bunch of different Spidey supporting characters, but in particular, Chameleon. It's cool. Yeah. All right, let's move to The Marvels, number three. This book is wild. This book is bananas. <laughs> I love it. If you are a fan of like the Marvel universe and Marvel history, this one is a doozy. It's set in the past. So you got Red Guardian who uh, meets up with a young Reed Richards and also Ben Grimm is there who meets up with Crash Simpson. And there's a young George Tarleton in here who, you know, before he goes Modoc. this book is wild. Highly suggest everybody check out the first two issues. This one, although does stand alone on its own, it's sort of building this bigger story of the Marvel universe. I, I'm also just going to go and give the 156th award to Alex Ross because Alex Ross's covers for the every issue are just stunning and we don't talk about them enough. Agreed. That guy is pretty good. Yeah. Oh, also Batrock is in this issue. So boom, there's a reason about <laughs> it. Yeah. Wee wee. Uh, next up we have Shang-Chi number two. This is Shang-Chi versus the Marvel universe. Uh, that's the title of this issue. And we get plenty of that kind of action in here. Maybe I'll give the 156th anniversary award to colorist Triona Farrell because I think the colors in here are pitch perfect. There's sort of a faded hue, a watercolor type look to them. It allows us to really focus on the characters, to get inside their heads. It just adds to every single element of the story that's being told here. I'm excited for the future of this Shang-Chi story. I think there's some special stuff brewing in here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing and seeing the trajectory of where we're headed. Yeah. All right. Uh, our last two books are Star Wars titles. First up is Star Wars, Dr. Afra number 11. This is a uh, War of the Bounty Hunters tie-in. It uh, brings in the character Dirge. Dirge, the big bounty hunter, shows up here. and it's, It actually leads to a really fun sequence with Dr. Afra and Sana trying to work together with Dirge to escape some creatures. This felt like the most vibrant, fun Dr. Afra issue so far that we've had in recent memory. It just like really pops. It's really fun. It moves very quickly. Uh, but I think I'm going to give my 156th anniversary award to there's a panel towards the end of the issue in which Dr. Afra is kneeling down and talking to a hologram of a character. And it's just so wonderfully done to see the way that Afra's body language and actual just like presentation changes when she's talking to someone who she knows not to mess with. It's so well done. That piece right there is my favorite part of that issue. Totally. Wrapping things up this week with Star Wars. We have Star Wars, The High Republic, number six, my 156th. Marvel's pull list anniversary award goes to R&R. Do I mean rest and relaxation? No, I do not. I mean ranker riding. Yeah. We're riding rankers in here. So much fun in there and so much fun across that and the rest of all these new Marvel mags headed your way this week. And while you're at your local comic shop, go ahead and take a look at the collection section because there's a ton in here. We have King in Black in collection. We have Reign of X, Volume 1. And then, of course, we have Year Boy, Ryan. In collection, we have Modoc Head Games. Uh, so pick that one up. What a week. All right, over on Marvel Unlimited, it's also a big week. We've got issue nine of Cable, so you can catch up on a whole bunch of that. You got King and Black stuff in there, Maestro, Miles Morales, 
And I think most importantly, though, is the first issue of the current Alien series is in there. So if you are a Marvel Unlimited subscriber and you haven't checked out the Xenomorphs, you can get them right now in MU. Definitely, definitely a big book to check out that and many more. You can see the full list on Marvel.com. All right, Tucker, what time is it? Oh, it's Ben Percy time. One of the best interviews around, one of the coolest guys around. It's time to talk Old Man Quill with Benjamin Percy. All right, Tucker, let's get ready for some poison as we (laughs) bring back to the show Mr. Benjamin Percy. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I feel like we have a trajillion things to talk to you about. Well, off the bat, congratulations on your new novel being yeah. out there. We want everybody to check that out. Congratulations on Hellfire Gala. Yes. And of course, congratulations on the uh, Wastelanders podcast. The uh, Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord is finally here. How you feeling? It's been a busy week. Uh, <laughs> I feel a little nerve-shredded. My eyeballs are a little dribbly, but I'm good. I'm thankful that I have all these cool things that are finally coming out. I mean, the synchronicity of them launching all at the same time is just coincidental. You know, some of these things have been in the works for over a year. Some of them in the works for over two years. So now they're all out in the world and it's a relief, but it's also very, very cool. And I'm grateful that people are checking them out. Yeah. And the the novel, of course, is called The Ninth Metal. So everybody go check that out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that whole book is in a way inspired by comics. I give thanks and the acknowledgements to all the creators who came before me, including Lee and Kirby, because I'm trying to, you know, play around with a different sort of sandbox, my own kind of shared universe. When we've spoken to you in the past, and I've had the luck to talk to you and interview you for various projects, you're, you're in your office. You're always in that office. And I just imagine you tucked away. There's in my head, there's eight feet of snow outside of that window right there. Do you, are you a morning writer? Are you an all day writer? Are you a nighttime writer? Are you just like squirreled away down there? How does that work? This is actually a virtual background that you're looking at (laughs) in a cave right now that is littered with bones and there are ciphers etched on the walls. You know, I live outside of town. I've got a little over five acres of woods. I've got my apocalypse bunker here. I'm all stocked up with like four freezers worth of meat, you know, a few gallons of bourbon and, uh, you know, enough toilet paper to make it through the next millennium. And, and I, you know, my, my day is pretty ordinary in general. You know, the, there's something about having like a really rigid schedule that helps the creativity flow. And so I wake up every day, I get the kids off to school, and then I, you know, with a boiling cup of coffee in hand, go down to what everybody refers to as the dungeon. <laughs> so you are looking at the dungeon right now. I'm, I'm in my basement. I do have, you know, a view of the woods and a big pile of, of split wood beside me. And then up on my wall, and this is an important part of my everyday, this used to be this closet used to be uh, the previous owner was a hobby photographer. So it's a, it's a dark room. And mm. in the dark room, I, you could call it my nightmare factory because that's <laughs> where I tack up all of my ideas. So this includes novels, but it also includes all my Marvel comic stuff. I have outlines in the wall because it's hard to keep, you know, just everything in your brain, especially when, you know, I'm writing comics well into 2022 right now. 
And so keeping all these storylines straight, I have these graphs, I have story ideas, I want to later include character shifts that I want to occur. And every important part of my morning is while that, you know, cup of coffee's steaming in my hand like a fired gun, I'm staring at the wall and letting it all soak into me so that when I sit down at the keyboard and start to hammer, I'm ready. And mm-hmm. it's all clicked into place. And I usually go, you know, I take a break to walk the dog and eat lunch and all that, but I go from about 7.30 to 4.30 each day, and then I just dad it up for a while. And then <laughs> later at night, sometimes, you know, the deadlines get, especially with comics, sometimes the laptop's open again at 8 or 9 p.m. My mutant power is super lame. You know, I have the ability to concentrate. You know, if like, <laughs> you know, Sabretooth was attacking, they'd be like, Ben, hurry up, concentrate. Oh, crap. <laughs> You're not help at all. Uh, uh, so I can just, I can go into, I can go deep in the well. You know, I can just be lost in, in a kind of trance. And then there's 10 pages in front of me somehow. That's so rad. I love the idea of you turning this dark room into you know, your, your nightmare room. But we also need to make sure everybody knows our reading club that you've picked for us this week is Old Man Quill, numbers yeah. one through six, the first half of the run. For anybody who wants to read along, uh, and if you haven't already, check it out on Marvel Unlimited. Ben, I would love it if you could give us a 30-second summary of the story of Old Man Quill. All right, we'll start in three, two, one. It's a story that is packed with spectacle and ripe with suspense, but at its core, it's the story of a fallen man who is hoping for redemption, a reclamation of glory, right? Quill has fallen from grace, and in that way, his story thematically mirrors the earth, both are broken, both are stripped of their heroic luster. You know, they they crash land in the wastelands after all these years away, but both the Earth and Quill are hopeful for a new dawn. All right. It was about like 35 seconds, so you are disqualified and you you have (laughs) lost, but it's okay. It was really fun to revisit it, especially in light of the Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord show coming out. Um, so we're talking about Old Man Quill because you also wrote the Old Man Star-Lord podcast. That's right. And, and the podcast could not exist without these foundational comics. You know, what I refer to as the Old Maniverse. You know, Old Man Quill and Old Man <laughs> Logan and Old Man Hawkeye. Uh, and it's not that the podcast is an adaptation, a direct adaptation of them, but all of those ingredients were prepped by these creators that came before me. And I just love the idea of this shadowy alternate future of the Marvel universe, where you are freed from the constraints of the canon and anything goes. Mm -hmm. It's a setting and a landscape that I really love because I feel like, it can go in certain different directions. You can go really post-apocalyptic with it. You can go and lean into the Western angle of it. I would love to have you share your thoughts on that side of things, on if you found innately certain genre influences starting to bubble up and inspire you as you were writing the Wastelanders show, or if you know you sort of decided ahead of time, preordained, like, I want to lean into this angle. I want to do this kind of thing. Here's where I'm coming from. I used to teach a course in my previous life when I was a big nerdy professor. 
Um, now I'm just a big nerdy comics writer. Um, but in my previous life as a professor, I taught this graduate course at Iowa State called Rewriting the West. And one of the things we did was we looked at the evolution of the Western. So starting with Owen Wister's seminal text, The Virginian, moving our way forward all the way to Stephen Graham Jones or Leslie Soko's Ceremony. And we were also looking at the films like the John Ford Western, moving forward. And the John Ford Western is full of all these archetypes and traditionalist filming when it comes to camera work and such. And what's interesting is when you move forward through time, right, things scramble, things start to get revised intentionally, and they're saying different things about the West when that happens. Now, as a sidebar, I'll say that a lot of sci-fi stories are Westerns. Mm. Star Wars, as an obvious example, it makes perfect sense because you've got the frontier of space, the frontier of the West, right? A lawless territory. And anyways, if you think about the traditional archetypes that are in, you know, the early Star Wars films or the traditional archetypes that are in the early John Ford films, look at the way that, like, Sergio Leone with his Man with the No Name trilogy changes all of that up. Like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The opening shot of that movie is you've got this Western landscape of Red Rock, wide view. You're like, I recognize this. This looks like a Western. But then all of a sudden, this guy's face swings into view really uncomfortably close to the camera and the scarred up quality of it, it replicates the red rock around you and you feel really, really unsettled. Like what's going on here? This isn't normal. Then you see this single street town and there's a dude over here and there's a dude over here and it appears to be high noon and you know what's going to happen, right? But you're wrong, but there's still traditional elements. Here's this tumbleweed. Here's this rib slatted dog. Here's this stagecoach with a canvas flapping off of it. All these recognizable elements and the men move towards each other and they reach for their six shooters while pushing aside their dusters and their fingers spider towards the trigger. But instead of firing at one another, they join forces, rush into a saloon, pushing aside the ribcage doors and you hear gunfire shout. Then a window shatters and a guy jumps out and you get a freeze frame, which is also really unsettling because that's not how Westerns work. And it goes, aye, aye, aye. And it says the ugly. And there's this dude with a giant turkey leg and strips of meat hanging out of his teeth and his gun's smoking. And he jumps onto a horse and rides out of town and you go back into that saloon and you find the first guy's dead on the floor. And it's like, what is going on here? He's taking the West and he's snapping it over his knee and uh, saying to hell with all of those old, you know, traditional tropes. I'm saying something new about the West. These are, uh, you know, the cowboys in a white night and my cowboys, they all wear brown hats because we're in morally ambiguous territory and the cowboys are ignoble, almost rapacious presence, right? And the same thing is sort of going on with this old maniverse in that it is scrambling your sense of what Marvel is. It's occupying that sort of Sergio Leone territory. You know, everybody's sort of in an anti-heroic state in a way. Everything's fallen. The heroes who still are alive have somehow compromised themselves. Mm -hmm. And you're not quite sure where anybody stands. Are the Ghost Riders bad guys? in this? Are they protectors of the West? And so on. So I just love how it's a frontier setting, not only because, you know, this whole thing has a Wild West feel, but it's a frontier setting because anything goes, right? The horizon is beckoning to anybody who as a writer approaches these old man comics or these old man podcast seasons. Good God, I love that answer. Hearing you talk about Westerns and space stories and sci-fi, Makes me also think about the connections to samurai stories and then makes me think about Wolverine. And do you think that part of, you know, Wolverine as the the lone gunslinger, that sort of kind of character that he sort of portrays 
his place that has been in the Marvel Universe. Do you think that has been part of the the reason why you, you've been attracted to him and writing those kinds of stories? Sure. I mean, Wolverine is a wandering Ronin in many of his stories. You know, you see the samurai and the Western tradition coming together there. And, you know, I love writing a story where a stranger comes into town and shakes things up. I've done that with Wolverine already. But, you know, he's in a different place right now. Right now, there's something, you know, especially compelling going on with the X world, with Dawn of X, Reign of X now. And, you know, for the first time, he has a nation. For the first time, he has family. For the first time, he has a shot at what I guess you might call, could it be happiness? And this is an unfamiliar moment for the character. And of course, I am going to challenge that in the months to come. You know, I'm building towards something where you're going to have that other Wolverine, the Wolverine we knew from before, clashing together with the Wolverine who I've constructed in this Krakoan era. And we'll see who wins. With a new setting like that, it just makes me think, and in relation to Old Man Quill, and certainly in relation, especially at the time of recording, when the first couple of episodes of The Voice Landers just dropped, in a story about a post-apocalypse, in a story about a new beginning, I'm curious about your thoughts on the sort of act one setup, the preamble, the pre-inciting incident information that a reader or a viewer taking the story in needs to know before getting into the arc of the story. Is that something that you feel is utterly crucial in the case of Old Man Quill telling the story of what Star-Lord was like with the Guardians, what he was like when he was, you know, a member of the team when everything hadn't gone to hell on Earth? Or is that something that you like to break the mold with a little bit and mix up and how you convey that information, convey that emotional arc? Well, this story begins in the middle of things. Like you drop right into trouble. And I'll answer the question in part by addressing the demands of audio. Because audio is very tricky to write for. Like if you think about how easy it is for an audience to be immersed in an environment when they're watching a movie or a TV show or reading a comic, right? Oh, it's light out. It's dark out. We're in a desert. We're in a jungle. You see these things and you're clued in. How do you do that through audio in a way that isn't clumsy and expositional? So one of the things that we're always thinking about is like, okay, how do you convey information? And sometimes we do this thing where we sandwich together the past and the present. So let's say your story's taking place in the present. It's oftentimes great to have, I guess you could say, an interrogation of sorts going on. And I learned this from listening to shows like Serial and S-Town and Homecoming, right? In Homecoming, there's a therapist talking to a patient. They have these this easy interplay and an easy setup for exposition. And they can be like, well, tell me about what happened last week. And they're like, well, last week I was doing this at this place when this happened. And then the past intrudes upon the present and spills into it. And then you hear what's actually happening in the past. I do a lot of that with old man Star-Lord, right? And I did a lot of that with Wolverine the Long Night. In Wolverine the Long Night, I've got these interrogators. I've got these federal agents as the point of view. So they go into the small Alaskan town. They're trying to figure out who the serial killer is on the loose. Logan's one of the suspects. They sit down with people. And they're like, okay, what happened? And this guy's like, well, I was out on this boat going through the foggy chop at <laughs> 4 a.m. And I came across a ghost ship 
floating out there in the dark. The crew seemed to be gone. I climbed on board and clipped on my flashlight. And then you start to hear like the squeak of his boots on the, the deck. And he lifts up the hinge of the hold and looks in and finds the bodies and the fish down there and, and so on, right? So the past starts to float into the interrogation. The same way with Star-Lord, I've got a, a Regillian recorder as the point of view instead of an, a federal agent. Julian Recorder. Julian Recorder sent off by the Empire, right, to record, record new geographies, record histories in the making. And so she latches on to Quill and Rocket because Quill, with his overblown sense of ego, he's sort of like a quarterback gone to seed. He's reliving the glory <laughs> days of the Guardians of the Galaxy. But really, you know, he's now making his living as a scavenger and smuggler. That when he's talking about himself, you know, it's always unreliable. Everybody in this series is unreliable. They all have secrets. Quill has a secret. Rocket has a secret. Emma Frost has a secret. Doom has a secret. They all have these secrets. And what the trick with secrets in order to earn out their suspense is you can't just vomit them up. They have to be sort of subtextual for a while and hinted at before you finally get the true story. So with Quill, what's the true story? We know that the Guardians of the Galaxy are no more. But we don't know why. And I don't think we learn why until maybe episode seven. So that's a slow burn. But that's something that you understand is seated there from the very beginning. From the very first episode, you know that there's some uncomfortable truth there. And so, you know, the Regillian Recorder is like, why aren't you the Guardians of the Galaxy anymore? Are you Star-Lord because you're nobility? And we get all of these things that start to unearth themselves alongside the plot playing out. So super long-winded way of sort of addressing that question. And also just the challenges, techniques, arsenal of storytelling devices you have to bring to audio storytelling. Yeah. For you, like as you're working on something like Wolverine, which is set so deeply in the Marvel story of right now and building the, you're, you're laying the tracks for the future of all of our canon. How much fun is it for you to also then let your brain just go crazy and let loose and, and dive into a story that can be whatever you want it to be? Yeah, I mean, with Wolverine, right, there's there's so much legacy that I am tipping my hat to and honoring even as I lay new track. But with the Wastelanders, it's a much more freeing situation where I don't have to worry about, okay, what was going on exactly a year ago with this or that? You know, it's sort of like this anything goes, let the garden go wild. Along with that are challenges of like, okay, we can't go too crazy and we have to limit our point of view. And that's one of the reasons that you know, if you look at the comic, it goes wild. I mean, you've got Galactus, you've got so many different locations and, and such, and you've got the space cult that's coming after Quill and so on. And one of the things we had to do was realize, okay, we've got several seasons ahead of us to sort of explore this whole world. To anchor people in a new reality, we need to go small at first. So, yes, there are several different locations throughout the series, but we try to sort of home in on the fishbowl of Deadwood, or as it's been renamed, Doomwood. And then you become familiar with that setting. And through that setting, you start to get hints of what's going on beyond its borders, beyond the borders even of the wastelands, and what might be going on in the rest of the country. And I think that one of the best tricks you can use in a case like this is to have a rookie perspective. Think about rookie perspectives in storytelling, like uh, Harry Potter knows nothing about magic, right? Luke knows nothing about the Force. And so we get to learn about 
these things with these characters and it feels natural as opposed to diving into an expert's point of view. You know, Rocket and Quill have not been to Earth in 30 years. They go there expecting a hero's welcome, or at least Quill does. And, you know, that's obviously not the case. But we have this rookie perspective in that they let crash land on this world, and here is Mount Rushmore carved over into the faces of doom, and they're like, what is going on? So the rookie perspective, you get this great opportunity to just organically introduce bit by bit the mysteries of this new world and not make it feel like too much of a crash course. Let's talk a little bit more about the book here, the Reading Club selection with Old Man Quill. So you're thinking about your story. Do you go back and look at this and say, I like that moment from this storyline. I want to make sure we highlight this theme, this bit of interaction, especially the stuff that I think resonates a lot, of course, is the character beats with Star-Lord and the other guardians, as it were. Yeah, you know, I go through and I take notes and I think about what can we use, what can we not use. Sometimes that has to do with production value as well. And set pieces that work in comics and work in film don't always work in audio. You know, listening to things can be very confusing. One of the things that I homed in on right away was The Brood. Uh, that scene with the brood, you know, we sort of did away with certain elements. I, and I really hope that people will just seek out these comics if they encounter the podcast first, because there's so much good stuff in here. But, you know, I, I didn't have time for this giant space cult to follow them to Earth. And I didn't have time to do all the backstory with Quill's planet, you know, being destroyed and his family killed and all that. I didn't and have to, you have to sort of think about that. Like I have 10 episodes and I don't I don't really have it's really hard to have more than like three people in a scene when it comes to audio. Obviously, you can. there are exceptions to that. You can do it occasionally. But if you have more than three people talking, you're totally confused as a listener. So shrinking down the cast. It's not that you're not going to hear the other Guardians, but to begin with, it's Rocket and Quill. And they're the odd couple. They're Sonny and Cher. They're Kirk and Spock. They're, they're headed to Earth together. And then, I, you know, I see, okay, these Doom bots. I love that. But the Doom bots are in these big cities at the beginning. Like, we can't do big cities. We're going to make this a Western. We're gonna, so we're going to have, like, this scabbed out territory where the Doom bots are going around, you know, collecting taxation from people. And it immediately creates this sense of paranoia. Like, you know, am I being watched at all times? Has anybody seen Doom? Like, what's a Doombot and what's Doom itself? You hear Doom over the airwaves, but he hasn't actually been seen in years. What's going on there? You know, I love the Ghost Riders element of it, especially the sound quality. I was thinking about, okay, we got a Western, horse hooves. What if we have horse hooves that are sort of uh, hooved in such a way that when they hit the ground, they spark up and create flames? And what if they have, like, this black armor over their faces, the horses, like the ring wraiths in Lord of the Rings? And I just imagine like that squeal of the ring race out in the night. If you remember that from mm -hmm. Fellowship of the Ring, like capturing that in audio. And they would have like flaming arrows, which would also create a cool sound effect, you know, the and so, you know, doom is front and center in this. But, you know, I've always felt like the shark's not scary as soon as it pops out of the water. You want the fin. You want the surge of water. So let's take our big bad and put him in the shadows. So Doom is a voice. Doom is a Doom bot. Doom is a visage carved into the side of a mountain. And instead, his henchmen 
is front and center. And this is totally separate from the comic itself. I have Craven the Hunter, who I was asking, like, who would survive? Like, who would kick ass in a post-apocalyptic wasteland? My favorite Marvel villain, of course, Craven, <laughs> who I try to write as a kind of like Cormac McCarthy meets Werner Herzog character. And, you know, in going through this, you'll see all of these elements that you recognize, but I had to just, you know, winnow them down, simplify. It's very rich ore to mine, but it's too much. Uh, you mentioned Craven being your favorite Marvel villain. Have you written Craven yet in the comics? I have not, but I will say stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that. I just love the idea of this guy who has like found his happy place. <laughs> so <laughs> Craven is the henchman of this community of Doomwood. And there is uh, an activity known as deer on a spear <laughs> in which those who cross doom or those who fail to pay taxation are part of a ceremony and entertainment venue in which Craven blows his horn and goes hunting. Oh, it's so cool. A, a thing we haven't really touched on yet is the creative team here. So Old Man Quill, these first six issues written by Ethan Sachs, pencils by Robert Gill and Ibrahim Roberson, colors by Andres Mosa, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. There's two key things, and for anybody who has not read this yet, we'll be talking more about spoilers. So read the books. They're real quick. They're easy to read on uh, Marvel Unlimited or in the trades. But there's two things that really struck me rereading this was one, the use of Galactus and, you know, utilizing the Universal Church of Truth here as, you know, like they're the ones going out and doing all this stuff, but like the Galactus of it all doesn't, he only shows up at the very end of issue six, at the very end of this first part, which I, for some reason, I thought it was even later in the book when I first read it. I thought that was cool. And then the big ultimate storyline twist, having read it and knowing what, the thing was, and then rereading it and seeing, picking up all the cues very clearly again. I, I just dug it. It was, it was really fun. Yeah. And shout out to the art team. And that one of the cool things that Gil does is that he opens up in space and it's very slick. Like everything's really clean. And, um, you know, what the colorist is doing as well, it, it just has a much different look than when they arrive on earth and everything gets really grainy all of a sudden and washed out. So the art team just did a fantastic job of going from like the hyper-realism of space to just like this ground-down, washed-out environment that's really jarring. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about a visual medium like comics, we're talking about an audio medium. And then the connected tissue of both, I'm curious about your work essentially as a director directing the viewer's eyes into a certain place or directing the viewer's ears into a certain place. I'm curious if you even see yourself or your skill set in that light at all, or if it does all fall under the umbrella of writer. And if you do, if you have defined influences that you can name. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I see the making of comics as equivalent to making a kind of slow movie or in writing audio too. There's a lot of direction that informs the scripting that you don't see in Hollywood. You know, in Hollywood, you don't want to give camera work directions, but with audio, I'm getting this from my team. What does this sound like? How can we have more sound cues? What's the audio atmosphere and so on and so forth. So I, I have to do that. I mean, shout out to the director 
Kimberly Sr. and the audio production team, they figured out sort of how to do a lot of the stuff we weren't even sure was possible. And with comics, you know, the same thing applies in that when I'm talking about Kimberly and the audio team, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing the team. I'm referencing the cooperative effort. I'm the writer, but I never want to like say that it's my call. You're strenuously all trying to tell the best story possible. And everybody has to be open-minded. Everybody has to be having a conversation for that to happen. So I try to make that extra effort at being a little novelisty, not to overboard people with information, but instead to just conjure the kind of magic that makes it a shared experience for me and the artist. And then we figure out all of those little granular details about framing and then camera angles and such from there. How much does that change for you as you you start working with different artists? When you go from Joshua Kassara to Adam Kubert to Robert Gill, is, does your language and your relationship sort of change as you go from one artist to another? I mean, Joshua Kassara and I are at the point where we're just in a mind meld situation. <laughs> with Adam Kubert, Adam is a legend, right? And so one of the things that I do with Adam is I always do a summary for him in advance of what the story is going to be before I ever write it. And usually what I do is I underscore thematics too when I'm talking about these sort of things. So that's what I do. It, like, it differentiates between from artist to artist and how they like to play. Freaking Adam Kubert, man. I love that man. <laughs> genius. Yeah, he's a genius. Yeah. 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 When you're talking about, you know, coming up with these story arcs, and you mentioned having graphs. Is this something that you literally have, like, in the arc of the Wolverine story I'm telling? We go from here, and there's a literal linear progression of where we are in his story, where we are emotionally with him. And you can go into the room in the morning and look at it and go, okay, we're here. I know that the tone of the story that I'm telling right now has to fall into place with this. I know that next issue, I'm setting it up for a big loss or a big win, and I need to proceed that with something. Is that something that you literally map out? Yeah. I mean, I've got right over here, I've got print-ups from Mark Basso where he's mapped out the next six months of deadlines. And I have the issues written beside it. And next to the issues, I have little notes on each thing that needs to happen. And then over here, I've got the big graphs that have the story arcs in them and character beats. When Hickman and Jordan White they sat us down and CB and talked to us about all this. You know, it was clear that we had real estate. And so I've had the luxury of being able to tell the long story. And as a result of that, if you're reading X-Force and you're reading Wolverine, you see how I'm seeding some things that don't play out sometimes for 16 issues. And that's because I have these graphs as well. I've, I've got to follow up on this. I got to follow up on that. I got to follow up on this. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's it's me being both a novelist and a comics writer, or I don't know if it's 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 like writing television as well, where you know you just have like that long runway in front of you, and you're aware of all the things that are going to happen along the way. But I mean, like Beast, I know exactly how my run ends with Beast. Mm. I was just about to say, even if we were going to change subjects, I needed to jump in and say. The stuff that's going on with Beast is some of my favorite stuff that's happening on Krakoa right now in general. Oh, my God. And I've said this on the show before, but Josh's Beast in particular so good. is one of my favorites in uh, maybe ever. That great moment he drew in the Hellfire issue where you see Beast just standing there. Yeah, yeah. In shadow. And he looks like he just stepped off of the Godfather set or something. <laughs> yeah. But there's also there's a shot of him eating shrimp. 
And it reminded me of in Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, when Denethor, yeah, the, when he's eating the the chicken and yeah. and the the tomato, and he's just like staring, and it's like he's seething, and like he's thinking, and he's scheming, and he's eat. It's so disgusting. Josh crushed it, and, and Josh put him in, you know, in short pants. Because yeah. <laughs> why not? <laughs> I love that, and and you know we've talked as well over time, like we wanted Beast to change physically. Like he's in the headquarters for X-Force. He's in a chair and he's also sort of swelling with hubris all this mm-hmm. time, becoming more and more of a megalomaniac. And so you sort of, if you're watching closely, you see Beast, his posture starts to get hunched. He's got a belly now. So it's fun to capture that transformation. Yeah. Another character I love that you guys have been playing with. And I look, I, I'm making a request official right here. I want to forge limited series. Oh, yeah. I want full on forge. I've always had a weird fondness for the character, even though he's kind of the worst, you know, capital italics, the worst. But at the same time, like the way you write him, I am 100% here for any time forge shows up. I'm just channeling, you know, 1980s action films when writing Forge. And actually, I'm, I'm working on a Forge scene right now in front of me on the computer. Wow. Him, Logan, and Maverick. Yeah. Oh. Wastelanders? How about headbanders? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might have seen one of those early issues when, uh, you know, Forge and Wolverine come together and do the Predator handshake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Classic. So good. Uh, all right. Well, you you clearly have a couple of deadlines to get to, a couple of scenes to write, <laughs> a couple of uh, new pieces of art to put up in the nightmare room. Right. So I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, but uh, yeah, anything else you want to share with us? Any uh, any other teases you want to give for whether it's uh, Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star Lord, or the future of uh, your your Kirkoan endeavors? Yeah. I hope that people tune in to Wastelanders. It was a fun opportunity for me to stretch some different muscles uh, and that, you know, there's a lot of comedy woven into the thrills. And so that was especially nice to write, especially during the darkness of the past, you know, year during the pandemic. It was kind of a necessary outlet for me, medicinal. Um, so I hope people enjoy that. And, you know, there's just Old man Star Star Lord, old man Quill. It's just it's dad jokes. I'm finally able to employ <laughs> dad jokes. But then with Wolverine, you know, stay tuned. There's a lot of crazy stuff coming, including. Oh wait, I can't talk about that. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I like it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. This is great. Thank you once more to Mister Percy. What a guy. What a writer. What a talent. Hell yeah. That wraps it up for us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with the help from Megan Bacala. Jill DeVoff is our Director of Audio Production and Development. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List Audio Development Manager. And Tucker, did you know that Brad is actually a Captain America? He is Whoa. a Captain America of the karaoke clubs. That man <laughs> protects all the karaoke clubs you can find from all the bad <laughs> people out there. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.